The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, there's no denying it. There's something compelling about a queen. I'm a good and loyal American, as devoted to democracy as you can be, and I will binge watch The Crown as soon as it hits my Netflix inbox. But it's not just Queen Elizabeth II, as fascinating as she is, nor is it Elizabeth I of interest to anyone who loves Shakespeare. It's the feeling I get when looking at anyone in the past who gained power or had it thrust upon them, anyone who was viewed as a leader, anyone who rose and fell and maybe rose again. People who lived unordinary lives. People who lived lives with the highest stakes. People who were on the edge of history, of power, of humanity, of life. We have such a queen today. We'll be looking at Marie-Louise Christophe, born in what we now call Haiti in 1778, dying in Italy 72 years later, in exile. The wife and then widow of Henry, the king of Haiti, a black king who ruled over the newly liberated kingdom of Haiti. What happened after he died? How did it lead to Marie-Louise's exile in Europe? And how did a 21st century author, herself known as the Queen of Black Historical Fiction, according to Booklist, come to retell and largely correct this Regency-era Black Queen's story? Vanessa Riley will join us today on the History of Literature. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. A big show for you today. Vanessa Riley is here. She is very fun to talk to. I hope you enjoy that conversation with her. She will be the meat in our literary sandwich. The main course on the literary menu will also have our next Emily Dickinson poem for an appetizer and a My Last Book for dessert. So my last book will be, let's see, let's ask our friend and author Jolene Hubbs what she will choose as the last book she will ever read. But first, we jump from Emily Dickinson number 32 all the way to number 90 today for a wonderful poem that echoes some of the themes we saw last time. This one has 16 lines, eight pairs of couplets, and a few notes We'll give you, before we begin here, a, a Chanticleer. Chanticleer is a rooster. Tyrion is purple. And Nicodemus's mystery, well, we'll talk about that afterwards. We will explain what you need to know. So, here we go. Emily Dickinson, poem number 90. An altered look about the hills, a Tyrian light the village fills. A wider sunrise in the morn, a deeper twilight on the lawn. A print of a vermilion foot, a purple finger on the slope. A flippant fly upon the pane, a spider at his trade again. An added strut in Chanticleer, a flower expected everywhere. An axe shrill singing in the woods, fern odors on untraveled roads. All this and more I cannot tell, a furtive look you know as well. And Nicodemus's mystery receives its annual reply. There we go. Emily Dickinson does it again. Where are we with this one? What are we talking about here? We start with a morning scene, someone observing a morning and noticing change, changes. What changes? What has changed? Well, night has turned to day, for one thing, and perhaps there is a seasonal change, too. The hills have an altered look. There's a purple light across the village. If you've ever gotten up early and watched the day dawning, you know this feeling. And whenever I do, I think, damn it, I need to make this part of my life. I need to do this more often. Get out here. Watch this. 
I associate that feeling with my mornings in the Pacific Northwest, where I was there on vacation, getting up on East Coast time way early. It's about three or four in the morning, wide awake. Wait for an hour or two, head out for that morning espresso and a good hike in the clean, crisp air, parking at some overlook and watching the day begin. That's me. For Emily, it was no doubt watching something similar unfurl in small-town New England. A wider sunrise in the morn, a deeper twilight on the lawn, a print of a vermilion foot that's, that's bright red. That's the sun. A purple finger on the slope. This is like a painting, right? We see the red and the purple, the gorgeous colors of dawn, but we also see the passage of time, the transitioning. The sunrise this morning is wider. The twilight is deeper. It's not how it was yesterday or last week or last month or last season. That's another thing to celebrate. The days are getting longer. The days or the days are getting shorter. The feeling that there's something new around the corner and all of it miraculous and anticipatory. When I was a kid, I heard my grandfather talking to his brother on the phone. His brother was going through some health issues. The two of them had been great friends their whole lives, 70 plus years. They were only a year apart. They'd spent their boyhood getting in and out of trouble together, in and out of scrapes. Both of them were strong outdoor types, fishing, swimming, tennis, golf. They loved being outside. My Uncle Bill used to drive a motorbike around well into his 70s. And it was February. They were on the phone. Uncle Bill was was down, dejected. And my grandfather, who was his younger brother by a year, said to his older brother, Bill, who was getting tired of life, aren't you looking forward to spring? Aren't you looking forward to spring? I was about seven or eight. I was struck by this. I already felt the seasons. I loved them all. Winter with sledding and Christmas. Summer with vacation and swimming pools and and so on. But they they all just sort of happened to me. This was different. This was looking ahead. This was enjoying the turn. This was this was a a, a person who had lived through the cycles and who knew what was coming. This was feeling, this was, this was expressing the feeling that life was worth living with new seasons to come. Aren't you looking forward to spring? That's the mood Emily is setting here, a sharp inhalation. <sighs> Look at those colors on the hill and across the village. Spring is here, people. And then she turns to her tiny creatures. She's a great one for animals and insects and the minute. A flippant fly upon the pane. A spider at his trade again. An added strut in Chanticleer. Look at these creatures coming alive in the spring. That fly is buzzing here and there, caring not for the, the rest of us. Flippant, bouncing his head off that window pane. Not giving a, a care. <laughs> Almost said something else. That little rascal, that fly, the spider, though, is diligent, webbing up the place. Those spiders have their plan, and they execute it. And the rooster gets an added strut. This is morning. It's time to crow, and it's springtime. He's cocking it up with his attitude. And then maybe the best line of all. A flower expected everywhere. An added strut in Chanticleer, a flower expected everywhere. This is the first real clue that we're in spring. Before this, it was mostly colors and insects. It could have been a morning, almost just a morning in any season. But now we know it's springtime, a flower expected everywhere. It's such a beautiful line. Who looks at an empty tableau of grass and says a flower could be there and there and there and in all those places? We're not there yet. Still winter. 
still transitioning, but we're at the point where we can expect all that. We can expect those flowers. We can imagine them into being. We can see the meadow, what it's going to look like. Oh, man. Marry me, Emily Dickinson. Marry me. Okay, carried away. As if we need to pull back from that kind of gorgeous vision. If that flower expected everywhere is getting us a little too on the sugary side, we get the next line. An axe shrill singing in the woods. This isn't just a peon to nature. There are humans here. Humans who make axes and cut things down and kill. Kill a tree. Flower expected everywhere. Beautiful. Kill a tree. Next line. Because nature is also useful. It's purposeful. It has utility. We wreck it, but we also use it for good, for good things, for homes and fireplaces and canoes and whatever this early morning axe wielder is planning to do with this tree that he's cutting down. It's a morning sound, like an owl, like the garbage truck rumbling down my road. Things are starting to happen. I cut off the couplet. Here's the rest. An axe shrill singing in the woods, fern odors on untraveled roads. Untra what kind of untraveled roads have fern odors? Roads that go through the woods, I think. Paths. I view them. I view them as paths. They start to get overgrown. You can still make them out, though. They'll be trampled down again eventually. But the ones, those paths, untraveled paths through the woods have some mystery to them. They take us to places of solitude. Roads that are less traveled are the ones that smell good and fresh and deep. Again, there's movement here, excitement, anticipation. Trees are there to be cut down. Axe, you hear the sound of the axe and know someone's busy. And journeys are there to be taken. But they're fern odors. And perhaps, next line, there's romance in the air. Romance of travel and the romance of romance. We see that in our next couplet, the seventh one. All this and more, I cannot tell. A furtive look you know as well. Wink, wink. Why can't she tell it? Why not? Well, there's room. <laughs> there's nothing stopping the poem from being longer. The poem could be 32 lines or 100 or a million. There's nothing stopping her from telling us except her discretion. If we're getting into an area where discretion is called for, a furtive look you know as well. Aha, hearts are racing, blood is pumping, spring is where... Thoughts of young people turn to fancy, and old people too, by the way. Just thought I'd throw that out there. <laughs> and Emily's not going to spell it out. This is this is Paul McCartney writing, well, she was just 17, never been a beauty queen, and John crossing out the second half and replacing it with, you know what I mean. She was just 17, well, you know what I mean. Wink, wink. That's better than trying to be Explicit. Let the listener supply the rest. A furtive look you know as well. You've seen it, reader. You've felt it. Spring is full of romance. Sometimes the, the romance is explicit and declaratory and overt, and sometimes it's secretive and hidden and furtive. Meet me on those untraveled roads, my darling. We'll look for some expected flowers. And finally, the capper. Remember poem 23 we did a couple of times ago. The bee, the butterfly, the breeze, amen. Is that saying that the natural world is preferable to the religious world? Not really. It's saying the natural world is the religious world. There's beauty in God's creation, and amen to that. This takes the same move, makes the same move, basically. And Nicodemus's mystery receives its annual reply. Who was Nicodemus and what was his mystery? I think it's his question. Jesus says, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he is old? 
Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? It's a fair question, right? Except a man be... You you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Well, we are familiar with that now. But the first time somebody ever heard that, needed a little explanation. How? How? What do you mean, born again? Born again? How literally are we supposed to take that? Birth is an incredible thing. It happens once and once only for everyone. What do you mean again? And Jesus explains the metaphor in his terms. Born again is through baptism, he says, and of the Spirit. And we are familiar with this. We know the phrase, born again Christian. It's a familiar concept to us. New to Nicodemus, though. Born again in the Spirit of Christ. That's the rebirth. That's Nicodemus's mystery. And Jesus gave it a reply, born in water and the Spirit. But Emily says, yes, okay, fine. You can get there that way, perhaps. But I can answer that question, too. I have my own answer. I see an annual reply that comes to that question every year. Look at this mystery around us, this miracle. Look at what happens in the spring, the colors, the light. The anticipation of flowers, the romance, the rigor, the smells of the ferns on roads we're about to travel upon. Look at the the transformation in the grasses and the trees and the animals. Look at that beautiful sun giving us these colors. Rebirth, it happens every morning and every year in springtime. For those of you who are looking for it, you want God? Here it is. Here's God. Open your eyes and your nostrils and your minds and your heart. Look for the flowers that can be expected everywhere if you know how to look. Giving up on life, my brother, feeling used up and worn out, worried that it's all meaningless, it's not going to be better. Well, hey, aren't you looking forward to spring? That's Emily Dickinson. Poem 90. Vanessa Riley is next. Hey, grown-ups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure Every week, Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get Fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes... The Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is acclaimed historical novelist Vanessa Riley, who's here to discuss her new novel, Queen of Exiles which looks at the political, social, and romantic intrigue surrounding Haiti's first and only queen. Vanessa Riley, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you for having me. So before we get to the book, I'd like to hear a little more about you. Where did you grow up? I grew up in a very, very small town called Aiken, South Carolina. Mm. I think we are known for nuclear power and refrigerator Perry. (laughs) 
Okay, well, that's two good uh, claims to fame. Yes. yes. No, it's, it's a beautiful small town, lots of horses, quaint streets. They still have streets that are arched over with oaks and, and maples. It's, it's a beautiful place. Mm. Did you have a public library when you were a child? Was were, Did you have a source of books to, to keep you busy? I'm guessing you were a reader. Yes. Uh, my mother made sure we were readers. Uh, she she was very much into literature. So when other kids got to go out and play in the summertime, we were reading Shakespeare, mm. Thoreau, and Baldwin, and oh, things like that. Right. We there was a there was a very small library, and it had a, a a nice selection of books. But my old my old elementary now is the public library, mm. which mm. I guess that dates me. But anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is now the public library, and it is a beautiful. We, uh, my daughter and I, we went uh, recently, and it was—it's just gorgeous. The uh, the renovations that they've done. I'm honored to have my books in Aiken County Library. Yeah, did that expand it quite a bit, or was the school very small? No, no, it expanded it quite a bit. Yeah, and uh, it was bustling. I, I when we were we we're midday, and people coming in and out getting books, all ages, all backgrounds. It's, it was wonderful to see. Oh, that's great. I love when those buildings are repurposed for things like that, or churches that become libraries and, and different, you know, or town halls or something, and they're, or uh, railroad depots. Sometimes these small towns have an old railroad depot that nobody needs anymore, and so they turn that into a library, and it always gives it a, a little extra flavor, a little history, and a, a, a different dynamic when you go inside there. Absolutely. The architecture is amazing, um, especially if they can repurpose it so they don't cut it, so you can still see some, maybe some of the moldings mm, or, some, or, re, yeah. or refashion trim and things like that, and the alcoves, because all these buildings had all these cool niches and and just vestiges and it's just beautiful. So I'm, I'm excited they were able to repurpose my elementary school. Right. Now, was your mother also encouraging you to write? Did that impulse come to you when you were a child? You wanted to write the stories as well? My mother, she wanted us to live our gifts, but she was always a practical woman mm. um, because I was also good at math. And as I tell everybody else, I'm a nerd's nerd. So, you know, when, you know, those, <laughs> the little academic team bronze medal for nomenclature and science, man, that was me. That was me. <laughs> um, so, you know, you get to that point. I, I started winning some writing competitions in high school. Um, and we get to that point where it's time to make a career decision. And my mother knew I was both passionate about writing, but I was also good at math. And she literally sits me down and she says, baby, you always need to be able to pay your bills. And so we went the math option, and she's absolutely right. Math pays the bills. Boys and girls, math pays the bills. Right. And what, did you become an accountant or go into business or? Oh, I, you know, nerds, nerd. I went the whole way. I'm an engineer. So I actually have a doctorate in mechanical engineering. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a couple more masters in engineering and engineering management, also from Stanford and Penn State University. So I went the whole way and yeah. worked for General Motors and did projects for NASA and and microsystems and and telecom startups. So it's it's been a fun ride. Math does pay the bills. Okay, wow. So you really were. I was I was imagining somebody who was kind of, you know, slugging it out through a nine to five job while uh, writing secretly at night and and so on. But you were actually you were working jobs where that that was was taking up a lot of your mental energy. I would guess. Where did you find the time to squeeze in the writing? Um, because I am a, probably a type A nerd, which is, you know, a special combination of nerds. Mm -hmm. So my day was full. So with, from nine to five, I'm an engineer I'm I'm working in diecast manufacturing. And then I come home and I'm a wife for about an hour, uh, two over dinner. And then I'm a mom at that same, you know, somewhat at the same time, but typically by 10 o'clock, I've got everybody in the bed. And so from 10 to two, I'm writing. You still um, are doing that? Now, this the past two years, um, I've become full time writing. Oh, okay. But before this journey, this has been uh, four jobs. Yeah, I was going to say that uh, with all the success that you've had, um, was it a tough decision to to give up the career as an engineer in order to devote yourself full time to writing? 
know, I think uh, sometimes your gifts take different seasons. Mm-hmm. And it became very obvious that the writing gift now was going to exceed the math. To, you, I believe, you know, you give everything all that you possibly can. So if I'm, you know, building a system within engineering, you've got everything. Every one of my my brain cells is firing to make sure it's the safest, most productive, most efficient structure we can build. Uh, and then, you know, now it's it's about writing. So it's like, how can I bring you a story that's going to move you, that's going to mm. take you to a place you've never been before? And the layering of the history and, and the, the tenses and the prose. What would you do to give you an experience you've never experienced? Yeah. So it's kind of a switch in the gambit, but it's full time now writing. I just still have that wifey and mommy thing too. So right, you know, right. <laughs> you can never, <laughs> it's full time with an job. asterisk. Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned Shakespeare and, and Baldwin, but I'm guessing that you're. You've described yourself as a nerd's nerd a few times. I'm guessing that historical fiction stood out as a way for you to, to what, get more facts in than, than let's say, poetry might have? Um, there are hard facts that are wrapped in poetry. Mm. So um, it, it, it's the lens. Um, I still think I, uh, and this is where my father comes in. My father is from Trinidad and Tobago. And when he told us stories, he there's a rhythm. Uh, there's a yeah. way the words shaped. Um, and so now you get this this thing of, of of literature plus the language plus the rhythm of the words um, that that that's infused in how I write. And so unless you're going to read Hiawatha, you know, it'd be a really long poem to tell some of these stories. Yeah. Right. Right. So actually, you, you know, utilizing historical fiction is the method. Um, in my opinion, there's always been a gap in the marketplace when telling stories about women's history, particularly women of color and black women's history. And if you look at the West Indies in particular, the West Indies is the power engine that so many economies depended upon mm, because of the yeah. chain, indigo and the cotton and unfortunately enslavement. Um, right. And there's so many stories that are woven into this narr- this this fabric that now it seems or for a long time, no one felt worthy of diving in and looking at these people, uh, humanizing their stories uh, and letting you know that enslavement, br- the brutality of enslavement is, is an important story, but it's not the only story. Mm. Uh, there are women and men who did phenomenal things survived enslavement or may not have been enslaved at all. But they've come at a point in their lives where they've decided to make a difference to the race, to their country, to their island, and they took charge. Those are the stories I want to tell. And there are so many of them that honestly should be in our, our, our history books right. at heart. Yeah, I was just going to say, it's a history that we're not always familiar with. But when you hear the story, and when I was reading about it in connection with your book, it's not only fascinating history, it's also clear how related it is to history in the United States and Europe. It's not like it's happening in some remote location and it was this interesting event that happened, but it's it's clear that it's so relevant to understanding the history both of the United States and Europe, as well as, in this case, Haiti. Absolutely. And, and that's that's what I, those are the stories I want to bring because it's so interconnected. You cannot exclude one without the other. Mm-hmm. For my prior book, System of the Warrior, I often think that if Jefferson had uh, embraced Haiti, it would, we, it would be on a different trajectory. Mm-hmm. But he, as a Southern president, as one who owned slaves, he did not want to have that idea of freedom infused, particularly in the South. So he abandons Haiti, uh, unlike his president. Uh, Adams had actually done a lot of work. Mm, yeah. But th- th- there could have been a different path. Right. So you cannot tell one bit of the history without the other. And that's what I do in my narrative. I want you to see the politics that's going on because it's a lot of politics. Even the Haitians are playing politics, which is 
we look at it from a, a modern lens and we think of this country that has had so much devastation. And we don't realize at one point this was a cultural center that they had some of the sharpest, brightest minds. Mm. And they played the politics. They played the newspaper game. They were trying to see stories just as much as the West was, as, as Europe was. And if I can take you back into time, that's what I'm trying to do. I want you to be within those intimate conversations. I want you in the ballrooms. Uh, in the boardrooms, uh, in the war strategy rooms. I want you to see what is going on. Right. Okay, so let's get into the book. Who was Marie-Louise Christophe? Marie-Louise Christophe is a very fascinating woman. And I briefly come across her name, uh, was translating uh, Thomas Matteo's History of Haiti, where he writes this 10 years after revolution, and he's able to actually speak to Mary Claire Bonaire and others who were alive after the revolution. And I see this little, this woman's name, and I, I think it's very interesting. And then I find out that her husband, Henri Christophe, fought in the American Revolution. Mm. That's where he gained his freedom. He was enslaved in one of the French colonies, and they bring, uh, because France is helping the United States get free, they bring enslaved people to the United States and say, hey, if you fight and you uh, help us win, we will give you your freedom. Henri Christophe is one of these men. Mm. He gains his freedom. He goes back to Santa Domingue, at Haiti at that moment in time, called Santa Domingue. Uh, and he begins to work for the hotelier of La Corona. La Corona is owned by a black man, Covidad, a free black man. And it is one of the finest hotels in the in the West Indies. His daughter is Mary Louise. Mm. And so she's seeing these elegant women come in and how they're dressed and their jewelry. And she's watching how her father caters to these exquisite families, these mm -hmm. principles in this nation. And I think that gets ingrained to her because when I look later at the grace this woman had and her mannerisms and how she chose to dress, how she chose to dress her daughters, you can see where the roots are coming from. And she's a woman who's never been enslaved. But um, when she meets this strapping six-foot man, Henri Christophe, it is love at first sight. The, fa the family literally have to keep her apart till she's 16, mm. uh, and then they allow her to marry. Um, and she's a dutiful wife. And then she becomes a dutiful wife of a man who's leading rebellions to try and get Haiti free. Then she's a dutiful wife of a lieutenant and then a general. And then she becomes the, the wife of the number two man in Haiti. Mm. Henri Christophe is right under Jean-Jacques Deslines, the man who liberates Haiti. He's his number two man. And together, all the forces of Haiti push out the French with help from Americans, with help from Britain. Um, they are also, because if you can defeat France and the major politics that we were talking about, at that moment in time, America and Britain are on the side of the Haitians to push out France. Mm. And then um, it becomes a kingdom. Well, well, right now, it's under Jean-Jacques Dessalines. He's assassinated. And the forces that, kept, that brought all the peoples together, the, the, the coloreds, the blacks, the Taino Indians, the Blancs estate is now gone. And the coloreds believe they have more education because typically uh, they are more educated. Typically, they had one Blanc parent, so they were given better educations, um, but they couldn't fight. It was the Blacks who used the African Dahomey ways of fighting. Um, Jean-Jacques Desalines particularly is skilled in this because of Grand Toya, who was a Dahomey warrior who brought those, oh, those talents with her when she became enslaved. And she taught the children. He was one of the children that she taught. The tensions between the two groups are still there. And they literally split Haiti into two pieces. So the southern half becomes a republic. The northern half at first is a country, but Henri has a dream that for the Haitians to be accepted on the world stage, we have to look like the other nation. Mm. And he looks over in Europe and he sees all these peerages and kingdoms, and he decides if we become a kingdom, that will make us acceptable to the rest of the world. And Louise, who stood by him all this time, is like, what? W wait a minute. I, I didn't sign up for that. <laughs> 
And, you know, the, the revolution cost them. They lost their, their oldest son because of the revolution. Mm. Um, uh, Toussaint Levateur, um believed France was one day was going to see that we, that the Haiti should be free, but should be were always heavily linked to France. And so he asked many of his generals to send their children to France as a show of support and this, this bonding. Well, when the revolutions kick off and they, they, they're trying to stop it, France actually takes revenge on these children. And so their son is lost. So Marie Louise, or Louise as I call her, looks at this and she knows that the minute you call us a kingdom and I'm the queen, that makes our children princes and princesses. Hmm. You've put a target on all of their backs. We've already lost one child. How can you do this? But he convinces her that this is the way to save all the children by leading and, and getting the, na- the world nations on their side. So politics was always a part of the narrative. And she's a reluctant queen, but she's his wife. She loves him. She sees his vision. And at times she's trying to help him. You know, sometimes when you meet visionaries, they're two, three steps ahead and they forget they have to communicate back to their supporters and the people what's going on. So she's trying to fill that gap and find ways. But it's it's difficult because she's a woman and he's a, he's a this this strapping general type guy. You know, he's he's macho man. And, yeah. you know, sometimes saying to your better half is, is, is not something they want to do. But she's right. Because he literally, he's, he's alienating the people and they're beginning to see that the, the people don't want this. But he knows that they've got to have this emissaries to England, to the parts of Europe to get their support because he's traumatized that France is going to come back. I literally think he has post-traumatic stress. And so you have a woman who loves a husband who's very driven, but also being chased in nightmares of the prosecution of all the wars he's been in, as well as the fear that France is going to come back and they, we won't be prepared. Right. And this takes place over about 10 years, right? That they're king and queen. And then exactly. what, what happens in 1820? In 1820, and this is actually a really odd fact, the English Regency that we know so well under King George, it's in 1811 is when the Regency is formally established. 1810 is uh, George goes mad for the final time. 1811, they establish a Regency and George dies in 1820, which ends the Regency. So then we get George IV. The Kingdom of Haiti begins in 1811. And when King Henri dies in 1820, the Kingdom falls. Right. It's a complete. We know everything we know about the Regency. We don't know about this this rebirth of a nation, of this this kingdom in Haiti. Yeah, right. Uh, the first and only free black nation is that in the Western Hemisphere, or in the Western? Yeah, right. Uh, but there was there was always a struggle. They were in debt to France, and Britain and the U.S. weren't exactly uh, uh, supportive partners throughout that period. So in eighteen twenty, then. King Henry is, what happens? He's overthrown by his own people, or who who takes him out? He takes himself out, mm. unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Has a massive stroke, and he realizes as a weakened king, he will not be able to hold the kingdoms together. And so, unfortunately, he takes his own life. And so Louise is left to figure out what to do next, how to get her children safely out of the country. It's unimaginable to be in that position um, trying to support your husband, trying to figure things out. And, and Henri was actually successful in ways because France was literally trying to come back. But because Henri and Louise had made a friend in England as well as Russia, they step in at different points, Russia and England, and forestall France's hand so mm-hmm. they do not come back. Mm-hmm. It literally takes five years, 1825, when the Republic has taken over because Henri's dead, the kingdom falls, the South marches and takes the, and reunites Haiti, but as a Republic. But they chose not to follow up on any of the things that Henri had done. So they no longer talk to Russia. They turn their back on England and they believe that they can come up with a negotiated settlement to alleviate the problems they have with France. 
that was very short-sighted. And so when France comes with their entire Navy and surround the island, Boyer signs away the future of Haiti. That's when he capitulates. And that's when they sign over that they will pay reparations to the losers of the war. And with the interest and the penalties and, and all these things as they go forward, and that's where you get the amount of debt. It literally was only paid off, I think, in the 70s. Mm, right. Billions and billions of dollars. So when people look at Haiti at, at, as we see it today, and they look at uh, the Dominican Republic, and they're like, well, see, what's, what's the difference? The difference is one country has not had the money to invest in roads, has not had the money to invest in education, in science, technology, because they've been paying uh, all the bankers the money. That is the difference. When the Dominican Republic had the money, so they kept investing in their technology and building roads. That's why it looks like a twenty, you know, twentieth century, twenty second century, whatever nation. And Haiti does not. Okay, let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back. I want to ask more about what happens to Louise when she goes into exile in Europe. Okay, we're back. Vanessa Riley, let's follow Louise as she goes into exile. I understand she she managed to flee Haiti and she she left with her daughters and they had some some jewels they were able to smuggle. But what kind of what kind of life was she facing when she got out of Haiti? Yes. So when she leaves Haiti, Henri wanted this European look to the kingdom. So the dresses and, and jewelry. So they had crowns, they had necklaces, bracelets, you name it, brooches. The, so she's able to smuggle this out. And her plan is she's going to work with Wilberforce and they're going to sell these jewels, as well as she knew that Henri had given money to the archbishop for them. Because once again, he's still having these visions, these nightmares. And so he in, in one of these episodes, he sends money literally to the archbishop in case something happens to hold on for, for, for the family. Right. But the night after they arrive, they come on the attempt. They're staying at the Osborne hotel where your dignitaries are stay and their jewels are stolen mm. by a maid. Can you imagine? Jeez. <laughs> you risk your life. Yeah. To get these jewels out of Haiti. And the night after you think you're in safety and you wake up and you find out that your jewels are gone. I mean, I don't, that would, I would probably lose it at that point. Yeah. But she, together, because she had two daughters and friends of kingdom, Wilberforce was a friend of the kingdom. He helped Thomas Clarkson help. And they were able to get the money from the archbishop, which was a process. So it was like trying to get money out of the church, I guess is interesting. Yeah. But they're able to get that. And she works with the, she chooses the solicitor that Henri had used, and they are able to get settlements from all the, Henri's, the kingdom was making money because they were exporting sugar and tobacco and indigo. When he died, there were transactions in situ mm. that hadn't been cleared. And then the kingdom fell, so there's nobody on the other end who actually received the money. So she works with the solicitors, they make settlements, and now she has the money to take care of herself as well as her daughters. She wants them to be the princesses that Henri designed for them to be. Yeah. But what does that look like in Europe? You know, the, 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 doing the research on her, on them were fascinating because modern historians will always say when I look, when I, when I find things, they call her the sorrowful queen. The sorrowful queen. So modern historians, they've latched onto this sorrowful queen. They're, they're thinking about the circumstances, I guess, and thinking she's lost her husband, she's lost her kingdom, she must be yeah. kind of uh, a sober-faced and pathetic, uh, you know, in, in the sense of evoking our sympathy, and she must have been probably demure and, and looking like a queen who has lost almost everything and sort of drifted through life that way. And you're saying... The newspaper accounts at the time don't necessarily 
demonstrate that? They don't demonstrate that at all. Mm. I mean, it, it's one of these things where it's like, are these historians just assuming because she's black, because the kingdom has fallen, that she would be isolated from society and she and her daughters would just right. live in a hovel someplace? Right, right, right. A tragic queen who no longer has the the apparatus of, of a kingdom around her and, and is sort of forced into reduced circumstances and is a victim of fate. Exactly. And the notion, you know, I, I bought into this for a while until I started do, digging in and, and seeing this research. And then a strange thing started happening. England began to put up these plaques, these blue heritage plaques, and they were saying, Madame Christophe and her daughters resided here. Yeah. And the first one they put up was on Marylebone Street, which is in Mayfair, which is one of the most expensive yeah, right. pieces of history, uh, real estate in, in the history back in the 1800s and today. Yeah. And then another one showed up in Hastings. Uh, I actually went to this house. This is a gorgeous townhouse right, uh, right on the seacoast. You, you, uh, we climbed the hill behind the house and it's got the, it's, it's um, unimaginable. And we were fortunate enough that this very cute little old couple let us in. The house was still authentic. So you still had the pine floor so you could feel it, the bounce. And we go upstairs and she, they show us her bedroom and it overlooks this beautiful garden. And you could just imagine in the spring, the roses starting to come up. Then they led us back downstairs to her main sitting area. And it has this large window that sees the sea. When Louise and Henri were first married, their first house was in the capital of Haiti, and it's or former capital of Haiti, and it's right on the the the, the waterfront. So she could it was the same similar type of view, but this is a very expensive property. It was expensive property then and now. So you either have to believe in your head that through the kindness and generosity of the British, that they would lend her these houses. This black woman from Haiti, mm. who's not, not born of, of England, not a citizen of England, they're just gonna give her these houses just cause, or that she had the means to purchase, lease these houses. Yeah. And then you go on and find other residences that she owned in Italy. I visited the church she and her daughters built in Pisa. This was not a woman without means. Right. And, you know, I, I think she was one of our first media stocked royals. Everywhere she went, there were newspaper clippings saying Madame Christophe and her daughters. They would number the uh, number of attendants that are going with her. They would tell us what hotel she was staying in. They would uh, speak to if she was waiting on diplomatic papers or not in order to sojourn into the country. Right. So this is not the the kind of, of narrative where, you know, you, you see someone who's who's sitting on a park bench and someone points over and says, look at that guy. He's actually the king of Italy and, and is, you know, the, waiting for the return to the throne or something. This is this is people who were traveling through the world with the clothes and the the regal bearing. And uh, they were they were living as royals in exile, basically. Absolutely. One of the most startling and heartwarming things I discovered was she and her daughters were invited to uh, attend an opera opening in Florence. And the other royals and ex-royals and diplomats were also invited. And she is seated on the front row. And on the front row is the, I think, the former king of Westphalia, the king of Holland, Madame Christophe and her daughters, the prince of Prussia. They seated them in order of so the European world recognized her as a queen. And once again, you wouldn't be in that circumstances if they didn't recognize you as a queen or if you didn't have money. Because let's be truthful. Money right. trumps everything in right, these worlds. Right. Yeah. It would be hard to pull it off if she didn't have money. Exactly. Because she wouldn't have the clothes. She wouldn't, you know, people wanted to socialize with her. 
there was money there. You know, you can buy into maybe the exoticism of this black royal. But she was accepted, she and her daughters, in this European world. And they reigned amongst the, the other royals and ex-royals, doing the tours that everyone did every year through all of the spa cities in Europe. Right. So what was the attitude toward them? I mean, I would have expected that there would be some racism and also just some some bias against Haiti and saying, well, that's just sort of an upstart uh, kingdom that, that hasn't been around that long. And, and who are these people? But did they just overcome that because their personality and their their carriage was so, uh, you know, they were asserting themselves to be royal and they kind of could act the part and, and be the part and, and were persuading people that way? Or were there, did they have some supporters and some critics? Or how did they manage to overcome all of these, what I would think would be built-in prejudices against them? Mm-hmm. I think that there is something that other royals understand about leading a nation. Because at this point in time, this is, they're not figureheads yet. They're literally re- leading nations. She's seated at, at, at very close to some of Napoleon's brothers. Because Napoleon just, you know, he, he, the king of Westphalia is one of his brothers. He just put them on the throne. So this whole time frame of how long you've been a king or a queen doesn't yeah, matter because right. many of the <laughs> people in the room were, were literally 10 years or five years before they were overthrown. Yeah, so this is, right. is the most, most hilarious thing to, to look at. And I think so there's appreciation of having achieved that level, even if you didn't have it for that long, mm-hmm. because no one's that long. I mean, you know, the, in France, the Bourbons were back. The world politics of who's on top and who still has their, their kingdom. Did yeah. they receive racism? I'm pretty sure they did because of human nature yeah. is like that. But I also think that because there are no scandals, because she has means and their own deportment, that they are just part of the acceptance of the world. Yeah. Um, I have found more circumstances that in Britain, in particularly, that if they know it's a foreign dignitary, they treat them as a dignitary, regardless of the color of their skin. Right. I think there's some of this going on. Uh, but once again, she's not coming begging. They are dressed to the T's. They, they fit the part of ex-royals in this circle. Yeah. I have found the, her name linked with a Prussian prince. I, I know one of the daughters uh, is engaged to, must be Prussian, a Prussian uh, a major. Uh, it's it just the things that you would think whenever you are in skin that is not blonde, when you are in a skin of color, being accepted in the world is always twofold. Sometimes they accept you for the moment, and sometimes you're truly accepted. I think that she had a lot of momentary acceptances. And then there, there were really long-lasting friendships. Um, Thomas Clarkson's wife uh, and the Clarksons were very close to them. They, they exchanged letters throughout. Um, they made real connections with Wilberforce and, and the abolitionist set in, uh, in England. And there are people on the world stage that they were close to. Chantebrun is one of the more fascinating uh, ones who was against Haiti originally. Uh, because he's French and and he you know he he wanted that was our colony, but as he got to know her and as he learned more about the atrocities that happened, he changed sides. He became one of their best advocates. Mm. So the world is not as black and white, and it's not it's not as uh, as easy to say yes, there be victims of racism. Uh, yes, there was racism, but there was also acceptance, and you you learn when you're in when you're in black skin you learn who your friends are you learn where to go you learn who you can trust because you have to because it's life and death particularly in that time frame and unfortunately sometimes now you figure out very quickly who is in your corner i believe she was very astute in that she she learned that from the the court politics that was happening in her own court who was truly on king's the king's side and who wasn't right so then when she was in Europe, what was she trying to accomplish? Was she hoping to uh, restore the kingdom and return to Haiti? Or was she, did she have some other goal? I think at this point, the goal is simply to live, yeah. to survive. 
But if she can help the politics, because she's still with the movers and shakers, she's with Wilberforce, who's trying to, you know, move Britain to be more supportive of Haiti. Uh, she with Clarkson, who was an emissary to the, to the French court, Schalterbrand. She's with the players who could make a difference, if at all possible. Mm. And she's trying. She wrestles with what she can do because she's torn. I mentioned that her daughters go. That means there's another son-law because of the overthrow of the kingdom. She's conflicted at different points. She believes in the people, but she does not like the people who are running the republic. She thinks they are short-sighted. And then when five years into her exile, everything her husband said has come true. France is back. And the world has turned its back on Haiti because the the way the Republic turned its back on the work that she and her husband were doing. I mean, there's major conflict of what's happening. But I never found that she wanted to be restored to Haiti. I think she wanted Haiti to be looked after or, or accepted. She wanted what Henri wanted, but she had no army to make it happen. She believed that if she if she's on the political stage, even though she doesn't want to be, if she can make a difference by just showing the humanity by her very existence, I think that was her end goal. But no, she did not want to be restored. Right. Um, I think she'd, she'd lost too much personally with Haiti. She, I think she wanted to go back, but she could never be sure it would be safe. Yeah, she would need to go back on her terms to some extent. Mm-hmm. So exactly. you've written about this era and this region multiple times. What appealed to you in particular about the story of Louise and her daughters? What themes were you able to explore in this book? Oh, my. Um, you know, the more I learned about her story, and we talked about the sorrowful aspect, mm-hmm. I felt violated for her. I don't want this woman who, who lived through so much, but to reduce everything through this window of sorrow to to take away her agency to take away the fact that she survived and that she kept moving forward to me is such an insult to this woman she was gracious she was beautiful she lived in dignity and she kept moving forward other people may have crumbled she kept moving forward figuring things out uh, and making a way for her and her daughters i think the resilience is, 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 a, is a thing, the self-respect, the never giving up aspects of this woman. And then on the world stage, holding yourself with such dignity. There were plenty of opportunities for, for pitfalls. There were scammers who were trying to get their money, um, there, you know, people trying to involve them in scandals. And they stayed above it. They stayed above the fray. They were a queen and two princesses till the end. I think there's something beautiful about that story that needs to be told. And her whole story needs to be told, not just the things she survived. She is not just the wife of. She is Marie-Louise Kovadat-Christophe, and she was wonderful. And she needs to be respected for all of her humanity, Mm. not just the sorrowful things that she lived through. Yeah. She had such an unusual life and such a striking example of of a kind of extreme life lived. Do you think readers, there's something in there for readers to connect to? Do you think it's it's easy to kind of put ourselves in her shoes in some ways? Or do you think it's more like an example that we uh, look at from afar and take what we can from it? Oh, I think there are so many places for any woman that is struggling with a child with chronic illness. Mm. I think take something from this journey for any woman who is married to an ambitious man, a man that's driven. I think you can take something from this journey. And then, you know, there's not enough talked about male mental health. She tried to be the best partner for Henri how successful she was, the book will lay into it. But there's something about dealing with a partner that has mental illness. How do you help them? You know, what level, what things do you, do you stretch yourself in order to be their support? And then the guilt 
of when things don't work out the way you want them to work out that are not the most healthy things. How do you cope? How do you survive that? I think that part of her journey, people can very much glean to. And then just continually, life has dealt you these cards that mm. you did not choose. Yeah. How do you move forward? Perseverance. Yeah. Yeah. How do you move forward the next day? How do you keep lifting your head? And then for those who have been alone for a while, and all of a sudden, a new love shows up out of nowhere. Are you still worthy of love? Do you wonder about, um, should you still be mourning? Mm, loyalty. Mm -hmm. From a historical standpoint, you're going to love the history because I've packed it with history. I've even included some of the craziest newspaper clippings. So you can see, I didn't make this. Yeah, right. You can see the <laughs> that, that, that this woman survived. But I, I take you into the ballrooms. I give you this intimate fly on the wall sort of perspective of you hearing the conversations of you seeing the humanity of these people. It's going to take you on a journey. It's, it's engaging. And I think at the end, you're, you're going to be, you're going to be a, a Louise fan. You're going to be, yes, this woman, she lived her life the best way she could. And she's happy at the end of the, the outcome by li something about living true to yourself, I think is a wonderful thing. And I think you, you get to see that in Louise's journey. Mm. Well, it's a fascinating story and a wonderful way to to dive into the history of the period through such a fascinating and compelling figure. The book is called Queen of Exiles, and the author is someone who has been called by book list the Queen of Black Historical Fiction. Vanessa Riley, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you for having me. This has been great. And finally today, we hear from our old friend Jolene Hubbs. After we talked about class, whiteness, and Southern literature, I asked Jolene a special question. Okay, we're here with Jolene Hubbs, expert in Southern literature. Jolene, this question comes from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can either choose one that exists or describe one that has not yet been written. Oh, gosh. Um, I have to say it's rather painful to contemplate a last book mm, and an mm -hmm. end to reading. <laughs> there are books by even towering canonical figures like Toni Morrison and Henry James that I haven't read yet. So, uh, yeah. So this is hard. My first impulse is to try to extend my time by selecting a long novel. Yeah, like, right say Theodore Dreiser's amazing An American Tragedy. It's eight or nine hundred pages depending on the edition. So maybe I buy myself some more time. But <laughs> assuming that's not sort of the the idea here, I'd have to go with Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God. Oh okay. Good choice. Why did you pick yeah. it? Yeah. It's a novel I've read probably more or less every year for the last 15 years because mm -hmm. I teach it in a class that I offer quite regularly called Women in the South. And it's one of the most beautiful novels I have ever read. Hurston's linguistic artistry always strikes me and somehow continues to surprise me every time I read it, even though I've read it so many times. Mm -hmm. And the protagonist, her name is Janie, Journey to craft her own narrative, to embrace the power of her voice after being silenced by others, to figure out what she wants out of life after chasing after other people's dreams, speaks to me differently and powerfully every time I read it. And I, so I guess I hope even on my last read, that book would have something new to show me before I closed the cover on it for the last time. Mm, yeah. Well, that's interesting because it almost seems like you read it now and you can find a sort of inspiration in it that people can learn things about themselves and find new things and find new paths. And it's interesting that you wouldn't worry that, well, what if you, what if at that moment you would feel like, oh, I want to live more? <laughs> well, I'm certain I would feel like that, but <laughs> no matter what. Yeah, um, no matter what book. Yeah. Well, the other thing I wanted to ask you is, because you've been reading it in preparation for teaching it, 
Do you think reading it, knowing that it's going to be your last book, will liberate you in some sense from thinking, oh, I, I have to remember to mention this, or I have to, here's a good point that I can bring up in class? Do you, Or do you think you would find that you missed that and you would think, oh, I just noticed this. I would love it to share with my students, and, and now I won't have the chance to. That's it. I, I love teaching. I love hearing what each new class of students got from the novel and brought to the novel. And hopefully I could, for my last read, still read it alongside my students, some of them savoring it for the first time, which is, I think, part of what helps the freshness stay there for me, too. Mm-hmm. So hopefully I could read it one last time in preparation for class and hear once again what some folks who maybe will return to it throughout their lives will think of it. That is beautiful. Somehow embedded in this question, implied in it is you're in bed, maybe in a hospital and you've got, you know, eight hours left and here you go, here's your book and goodbye. But I love the idea that it's it's your last book, but you're not going to be alone. You're going to be reading it and sharing it with your students and you'll have a kind of valedictory farewell that will include people besides just yourself. That I think is my goal, yes. So I guess we're also sort of answering in this question how we hope to die. And I guess I'm hoping that one of the campus buses gets me right after that so that I was well and in the midst of my day as I was still enjoying it. Okay, Jolene Hub. <laughs> Let's hope that the the campus bus, it, 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 I'm sure it tolls for all of us. Let's hope it oh. tolls not for thee until a long time from now. <laughs> Thank you. I love that. Thank you for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you. Okay, that's going to do it for the History of Literature. For this episode, we'll turn to Henry James very soon and probably have some more Emily Dickinson. We're on a roll with her. I'm not sure how long it will be before I get tired of that and her poetry. My guess it'll be sometime between 99 years and never. Flower expected everywhere. That is my new mantra. I hope you can see the world with the same kind of vision. I'm jo- oh, sorry, I almost forgot. My thanks to Jolene Hubs for joining us. And of course to Vanessa Riley, the Queen. Do check out her book, Queen of Exiles, and her other books as well. Great reads for you as you wrap up your summer and head into fall. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.